This is episode 79 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you've ever considered being a fine artist or have talked to an artist you know, you've probably heard and accepted some variant of the gallery myth. That the goal is to have your art featured in a gallery and then you're set for life. Buyers will flock to you, critics will appreciate you, and you'll get to continue to make the art you love. I like stories about unicorns too. Corey Huff joins me for episode 79 to discuss the relationship between commerce and art, as well as the hidden path for artists that leads to real abundance. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host... Charlie Gilkey. Corey is an actor and storyteller who fell into a career in internet marketing. In 2004, he discovered search engine marketing and social media. Since then, he has worked on marketing and software programs for some of the world's biggest companies. In 2009, he started TheAbundantArtist.com as a way to teach internet marketing to his artist friends who are asking him for help. Since then, he's helped dozens of artists go from never sold anything to selling pieces monthly or weekly. Some of his artist friends and clients have gone on to sell their work for $20,000 or more. He teaches artists to be empowered to take charge of their own art business and to not let others dictate to them whether their art is good enough, is commercial enough, or fits some predetermined mold of what an art career should be. In 2014, Corey packed up and moved to France for nine months, and he was still able to grow his online business and advance his crazy goal of helping 1,000 artists create a full-time income so they can use their talents to change the world. While overseas, he was offered a book deal. Corey is now back stateside and lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Lissy, and their two perfect kitties. Corey also joined us on episode 25, so this is our second chance to hang out and jam about art, commerce, business, and creativity. It's going to be a fun ride. Corey, thanks so much for joining me again. You are part of episode 25. Um, we had a lot of stuff to talk about there, and I'm, I'm interested and pumped to take that conversation forward. So thanks again. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Alrighty, so, you know, Corey and I do a lot of different things together. We... Um, we play tabletop games. We play other types of games. We walk around Portland. Um, we look at art. He looks at more of the art. I look at him looking at the art uh, in, a, in a non-creepy way. Um, and so we talk a lot about the intersection between artists um, and commerce and business and what it takes to be a thriving artist. And so, so many great conversations come up. Um, one of the conversations that came up during our last um, hangout in Portland was about Corey being the great corrupter. Right. Um, I, am the, I am the great Satan of the art world. He's the great Satan. You're almost up there. Well, what is his name? Like um, Peter Lick, right? There's like Peter oh, Lick. Oh, yeah. And then there's Corey, yeah. right? Uh -huh. um, yeah. So I don't know who's a minion of whom yet, or maybe you just got separate things going on. <laughs> um, but, but kind of bring us into that story and what happened. And let's talk about it. Sure. So I, sh I shared this story with Charlie last week. Um, I got an email from somebody uh, it was an anonymous email. I always, I love it when I get anonymous emails, uh, anonymous email saying that I was, uh, he said, think about this before you ask artists to disconnect from the sublime. And it was a link to an article on hyper on hyperallergic.com about a street artist named blue. 
And so what I took away from that email was this artist was implicating that I was by, by, by teaching artists how to market themselves and how to make money from their art, I was asking artists to disconnect themselves from the source of inspiration or divinity, whatever you believe that is that inspires your art. And the article about the street artist Blue uh, is he, he, Blue is a very well-known street artist, especially in Europe, and his work is in murals all over the place throughout Europe. And recently, a private art collector uh, decided to essentially gather up a bunch of murals from various street artists. And these were buildings that were going to be torn down. And so he salvaged the walls and then put them up in his own private showing area, um, assuming supposedly he was going to sell them, make money from them um, or something like that. And Blue, uh, the street artist, in protest of this person making money from his free murals that he put out on the street, uh, he covered up, painted over about 20 of his murals and basically left a note uh, at one of them saying that he did not consent for his work to be profited off of in that way and that it wasn't okay for, for people to profit off of his work that way. And... I find there's so many things going on there that I, I felt like I need to unpack it. And I, I spent like 20 minutes rant, ranting about this with Charlie last week. So one, uh, the, the street artist blue along with Banksy and a handful of other street artists, the whole reason that they make the art that they make, the whole point behind the street art movement is that advertising and capitalism has invaded our public space and that when we go out in public, we are being advertised to against our will that we did not uh, ask for or consent to this kind of advertising. And I think there's some great points there. Banksy and blue and the other street artists, great points. There's some essays that we can point to. I'll give you and I'll give you so you can point to. Yeah. Them in the show, like, yeah. yeah. Um, some great criticism of public capitalism. Uh, and so Blue, you know, he put his work out as a protest against capitalism, and then his work was being subver subverted into a way that a person was making money off of something that he didn't make and didn't, and didn't have the consent of the artist. Great protest. Totally legitimate protest. Blue has an awesome point. But this person who emailed me imp implying that somehow I am doing the same thing that this other art dealer is doing... I don't know that I completely agree with that. I, I think that what I'm doing is working with, like there's a, a whole range of things that people are saying in art. Some artists are protesting capitalism and protesting advertising. Other artists don't care about that. And they're making pretty flower, pretty paintings of flowers, or they are uh, protesting other issues, politics or women's rights or whatever. Um, or they are, you know, illustrators for hire and they are specifically hiring out their work to be used in commercial instances. So there's a wide range of art uh, that is made. And this particular person who emailed me, whoever you are, Mr. Anonymous, uh, I, I think that I am enjoying what I'm doing because I'm helping artists make a living from their work if they want to do that. And if they don't want to make a living from their work and they don't want to sell their work and they don't want to be involved in the capitalist market, they don't have to be. I'm only working with the artists who want to be. So, yeah, well, I mean the whole thing. So 
the, the email was a non sequitur to start with, right? Mm-hmm. So you're sure. doing this like, well, what Blue is protesting is other people using his work in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? What Corey is doing is helping people use their work in a certain way. So that the, the point to Blue is a whole non sequitur to start with, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Non sequitur or red herring. I'll let him pick whichever, right? Um, but I think there's, this, there's several important points that we just talked about or that you just mentioned there. There's one, the... Um, the thesis that there's something about capitalism that corrupts the intention of art, right? So that, that's one major piece. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a second piece that art is connected to the sublime in some sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we, if we were being, apparently, Corey, and you, you might know this, I, I've, I've had my sort of informal logic hat on for the last, I don't know, 20 days, and I'm, I keep trying to make syllogisms. And it's funny because when you try to do that online, you never can actually create a syllogism that makes any sense, right? You have to fill in so many blanks with, and, and, but I just can't do it. But anyways, so that's two things, right? And then there's this third is, uh, third piece is what is art essentially about, right? And I think in the last conversation, what we, what we got to was, and what you just referenced is we can't say that art is just for expression. We can't say that art is just for delight. Art serves a lot of different reasons. Some people quite happily like making money off of their art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they like waking up in the morning and do that. Other people wake up in the morning and they feel dirty by, by that. And I, I think there are, either, I mean, there are different perspectives. I would, I would, probably argue and Corey, you'd probably be on my side that on the person that that's like, they feel dirty about selling their art. I think it's because they have so many nested converse, so many nested conceptions about what art is and about what it means to sell mm-hmm. that they are literally um, driving themselves car- or mad because, you know, here's the thing about it. And I'll let you refer because you work with artists like of a particular stripe every day more than I do. Um, creating art is, it's got enough miserable making elements already. Like, you don't have to add <laughs> on top of it, you know? Like, making art is hard enough by itself without yeah. adding in capitalist concerns or e- economic concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to push back on one thing you said, Charlie, that you said that, um, that capitalism does not inherently corrupt the art-making process. I think for some artists, it actually does. Uh, because... If you are making work that is uh, afflicting the comfortable, if you're making protest art, if you're making work that is specifically addressing society's ills, um, and even and even in some areas, other areas, uh, capitalism or the drive to make money can actually influence an artist, even in subtle ways, to make different choices than they would otherwise make. Uh, and I've seen it happen uh, with the artists that I've worked with. And, and one good example of this is uh, there's an artist that I worked with a few years ago who she was having very little success. You know, she was selling some pieces here and there, but you go, you go to her homepage on her website and her work is very safe. It's very uh, sort of technically perfect flowers and birds and that kind of stuff. And it, it was very boring. Um, and she was trying to figure out why she wasn't selling and then buried a few pages deep on her website was this other 
flower. It was still a, a floral uh, painting, but it was very different. The color palette was different. The composition was different. The It was a very challenging work that was full of personality. And she had buried it three pages deep on her website because she didn't think that people would buy it. Mm-hmm. And because she didn't think that her family would approve of her making it because her family wanted her to have a career that was safe, that was comfortable or mm-hmm. dependable or whatever the right word is. And we talked about that for a while and there was a lot of emotional baggage tied up in her hiding what was her best work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, fast forward a few years, she's decided to make her best work front and center. Uh, so certainly the fears around making money can get in the way. And that's one of the things that I often have to unpack with the artists that I work with. So what I'll say about that is, sure, I'll buy that it influences an artist's work. Mm-hmm. Whether it corrupts it is a whole nother, whether it essentially corrupts it is really what I'm pushing against, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because for instance, there's a way you can subvert capitalism, right? To do mm-hmm. the very critique that you want to be. It, it's a different type, or to do the very type of critique or, you know, polemical. Right, thing. you can be Andy Warhol or Ashley Longshore or, or, yeah, any of that pop art stuff. Right, and so it influences definitely, right? It influences, and I would, other, I would say the other thing about our economic structures, it, it, our economic structures influence art because at a certain degree, unless you're, man, you're landed Mm-hmm. or you have an, a lot of free time on your hand, which means that you have figured out some economic like arrangement that allows you to not work a lot, but still be able to have time to do it. <laughs> like we can't get away mm-hmm. from the relationship between our economic structures and art. Sure. Right. And so yeah. maybe there's a world in which there's another economic structure, not capitalism that mm-hmm. enables people to have more free time and have more ability. But I still think at the end of the day, we would take the pressure of approval, which we see in capitalism that turns into dollars, mm-hmm. right? And it would be pressures for some other type of thing. It would be fitting into the group. It would be... There's always going to be some kind of pressure when, when it comes to making art. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I don't even think that capitalism is the biggest problem in the art world. I think elitism is a huge problem. People uh, d- arbitrarily deciding what is what good art is, uh, you know, like technical skill is something that most people can achieve and doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's about the expression, the communication that comes from the art. Uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum, there's also a movement in contemporary art against technique, uh, where it's just expression. Uh, but if you have just expression without technique, then the expression gets muddied and it's hard to know what, what that is. So there are all kinds of challenges when it comes to making art for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's one of the things and I was just talking to Cynthia Morris earlier about mm-hmm. this. Right. And um, by the way, relationship here, Cynthia Morris is the illustrator for Corey's upcoming book, how to sell your art online. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I'm just blessed to talk to creatives and artists today. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that come up for artists and we may have mentioned this in episode 25, but when you enter the field as an artist, especially as a commercial artist, you have to deal with market market demands, right? Mm-hmm. You have to deal with sort of expert demands, what the experts want you to do. And a lot mm-hmm. of times what the experts want you to do and what people want to buy can be wildly different. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you mentioned earlier, you have your close friends and family who desperately want you to be secure, mm-hmm. right? And that might be different than what the market wants. And it might be different than what the experts want. And then somewhere in the middle of all of this 
is like, what the hell you actually want to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, um, that challenge is not unique to the fine art world. No, it's, it's not. It's a challenge that happens for every person who makes something. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you make something that matters to the world, you're going to get caught in that same, that same trap. It happens in tech, right? Like I worked in a couple different tech companies and the product that the developers wanted to build was not necessarily the product that people wanted to buy. And it wasn't necessarily the product that the investors wanted to make. Uh, so, so there's this tension between creating something beautiful, functional and uh, something that people care about. And, you almost have to just decide you don't care what anybody else thinks and just make what, what is true for you. Yeah. And thanks for pulling it out. Cause that was a point with Cynthia. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be public speaking. There are things that you might want to talk about. It could be podcasting. We might want to riff around, you know, the, the, um, economic forces that, that create art and things like that. And people are like, dude, give me the seven tips. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and so there's whatever you do, if you create something that matters or you, you're out there you, and you're taking new ideas and recombining them, you're always going to have those pressures. Like there are certain, there are the experts, there's the market, there's your safe, close friends, there's your colleagues, and then there's yourself. And that's why when I was joking earlier, like making art and doing creative work is hard enough as it is. Right. Uh-huh. Um, you don't need to give the, the universe and, and you know, the, those demons that we create any additional fuel. Like it's going to take care of itself. Amen. Podcast over. All right, let's go. <laughs> Time for tabletop games. But you mentioned um, the elitism and what am I going to say? I think the elitism and the traditional career of artists is one of those things. And I think is, um, far more of a corrosive effect than sort of an economic structure, right? And so, um, you know the journey way better than I do. And, you you know, and some listeners might not know the traditional path. But if you can, kind of lay out the traditional path so people know what's going on with it. Sure. Yeah, the hidden path of the artist's career is something that we ta- we've talked about a lot, uh, you and I, Charlie, and that I've talked about in some other places where I give speeches and stuff. And the the traditional ideas that everybody has about how artists make a living are actually mostly wrong, which is pretty frustrating. <laughs> uh, yep. So I, in, in my work at the abundant artist, I actually do a lot of battling against that, against what people think are the ways that people that artists make money. So if you go to art school, you're trained to, graduate from art school with your BFA or your MFA and go into an art gallery and you hand all your work off to the art gallery and you, uh, you know, sacrifice uh, your firstborn child or something in hopes to the, that the art gods will somehow sell your work. But the, there are all kinds of of problems and challenges there because uh, one getting into one of the best galleries is sort of like trying to get into the NBA or the NFL. It's like, it's, it's very, very competitive and very hard. And, and it's also unfortunately subject to the tastes and trends of the time period that you that, that where you graduate or when you enter the market, uh, you know, certain types of art, whether or not they're better or worse than other types of art are going to be popular. And that's partially based on what people are interested in. And a lot of it is based on what the art gallery owners think that they can sell, what they themselves are interested in selling. 
So there's these tastemakers who move the market at the very top, but they only represent a tiny fraction of the number of artists. And even if you end up with one of these blue chip galleries, you're not guaranteed to make a living. I was just telling somebody else earlier today that I've had numerous conversations with artists who have gotten into these big name galleries and then, you know, a year or two or 10 years later, suddenly they're broke. Right. And, and the, the long-term material wealth that they thought they were going to have uh, either never materialized or came and went very quickly. Uh, I, I just Friday had a conversation with an artist in Germany and she one of her very first shows was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Absolutely stunning way to start your career. Since then, absolutely nothing. So get, get your work into a gallery, get it into a museum is not actually the, the path to long-term longevity. The other thing that a lot of artists think, okay, well, if I'm not going to get into the big galleries, I'll do the shows. And the, you know, you get the shows like art expo and, uh, and art Basel and all that kind of stuff. But the challenge there is it costs thousands of dollars to get into those shows, right? If you're going to do art expo, I think the entry fee for the smallest booth is a thousand dollars. then you got to pay to ship your work to New York. And then you got to travel to New York and you got hotels and all that stuff. So you might be out five to $10,000 before you've ever started the show. And then you got to try to, and then you got to be good enough salesperson to sell your work. And there's got to be, the right people at the show to, you, know, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. So when I started the abundant artist seven years ago, I started asking around, looking around at my artist friends and saying, okay, who do I know that's making a living from their work? How are you doing it? Uh, and please introduce me to your friends. We'll do blog posts and podcasts and all that kind of stuff and talk. So after talking to dozens of artists who have been making a living from their work for 10 years or more, uh, the patterns that emerge there are very different from what everybody thinks is the way that they should be making money. And so what, what I started about a year ago, I started calling it the hidden path of the artist's career. And when it comes down to is the hidden path to long-term longevity in the art world is developing relationships with the people who actually buy art. Art galleries don't buy art. They sell art. Uh, art dealers don't buy art. Sometimes they buy art, but usually they're selling art. The people who buy art are individual collectors who are enthusiastic about your work specifically, individual collectors who are enthusiastic about investment work, um, and then corporate buyers, right? Those are the people who buy work. So you, if you want to have long-term longevity as an artist, you got to build up your relationship with those people. And that means, uh, you know, and that can take a lot of different forms and there's probably about five different business models that include that. So shifting your thoughts away from where everybody else is to what artists who are actually doing it are doing is difficult because being an artist is a very isolated career. You're sitting alone in your studio, you're making your art, Uh, you may or may not have other artists in your critique group or something like that who are making progress in their careers. So, and especially if you live outside of the art mechas, if you're not in New York or LA or Chicago or Hong Kong or whatever, uh, it might be very lonely. So for all of those reasons, it's a, it's a lonely, obscure career. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to comment that like, and 
this might be repeating it, but people haven't heard it. Like when we look at every creative field, we're sensing a similar type of disruption, mm-hmm. right? The, the path forward is some people call it owning your own platform, platform right? Mm-hmm. Some people call it owning the relationship to your customers, right? You get, there are different ways, but you know, um, authors who think that they can go with one of the big houses and then they get the big book deal and then like they're, they're set. That's not the way it works. Wait, wait, wait. I've got a book coming out from a major publisher. Are you telling me I'm not set? I'm telling you you're not set. <laughs> Frick. <laughs> um, we'll walk and talk about it. Uh, um, so that's authors, musicians, same deal, right? Um, you think you get a, a label from a, co- or you get a contract from a label? No, it's not going to do the same thing, right? Or it's not going to be that for you. Artists, right? We go down to each and every one of those creative fields. And what we see is this massive disruption to where there's the hidden path. But for some reason, we, we're at this sort of vortex point to where the old myth of creative success uh-huh. is still dominant uh-huh. at the same time that we all know it doesn't work. Yep. Right. We all know, like, you know, that it, well, it's not that it doesn't work. It's that it, it, works only, for, it only works for a very small number of people. And, and in, in my book, speaking of my book, I, I actually wrote a whole chapter about how the music industry is <clears throat> somewhere between seven to 10 years ahead of the fine art industry on the exact same path, mm-hmm. right? That Napster and those other early companies that came along and disrupted the, the art business and made it so that people could get art directly from the artists that disruption, the, the big music marketing companies, the big music labels, they ignored that disruption for a long time and allowed Apple to come along with iTunes and scoop up the market. And now <clears throat> you essentially can't sell music if you're not on iTunes. You know, there's, there, you can, but it's very, very difficult. And then iTunes gets to take 30% of your revenue. That's a huge amount. So, the fine art world is in a earlier stage of that disruption cycle, right? There's, there's companies out there. There's about 300 different artist website companies out there that, that sell original art online. Uh, there's companies like artsy.net. Artsy is probably going to be the iTunes of fine art. Uh, it's, it's probably going to become at some point very difficult to sell art online. Uh, if you're not on artsy, uh, that I could see that happening in the next three to five years. So unless the art galleries and the artists recognize what's going on. Uh, we're going to see a complete disruption of the fine art market and a, and a reconsolidation around a platform like artsy or, or similar. Yeah. I mean, what fine art has going for it right now is that it's harder to replicate and reproduce, mm-hmm. right? Media like the MP3 basically spell the end of, you know, the, 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 the label stranglehold on everything. As soon as we could replicate it, it started happening. And so yep. then the question is, what's the most efficient way to replicate and store that? And iTunes won that game. Um, five, 10 years from now, we might be thinking about Spotify or, you know, something like that that comes, although they're competing head to heads. But anyway, um, it's, we just can't walk up to a, a painting and scan it right and and get a good reproduction of it and then reprint it nearly as easily it happens obviously sure yeah we just it's not hard it's it's so hard to do that we don't right or it's uh-huh. not as it's not or unless it's super huge right and then yeah. then it's replicated anyways right? well and and this is getting a little more theoretical but i think that 
I think that at some point in the near future, I could see a situation where a lot of art collectors don't necessarily care about having um, original pieces of art. That prints are so much cheaper and so much easier uh, and so much easily, more easily replaceable that just having a print is just good as good enough. And then, of course, digital screens are now so cheap and such high resolution that you can, I could very easily see people having high resolution digital screens in their home that rotate through all kinds of different, different kinds of art. And I'm, you know, it's already happening. It's already happening. Like yeah. The future is here when it comes to that. Right. Yeah. So who knows where the art market's going to go in relation to that. It's, it's a, it's a period of major disruption for art. It's a period of major disruption. What happens when we start creating art digitally as a primary medium, like canvas is going away. Right. Uh And then that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother thing. But I mean, we're, we're doing some of that futuristic thinking, but at the same time, this is, if you, if you are a young artist, Right. If you're in your 20s right now, you really do have to be thinking about this because we're not that far away. If you're on the trailing end, that's another matter. But mm-hmm. um, the future has this odd and annoying way of getting here faster than you think it will, <laughs> especially when it's going to undo you. Like all uh-huh. the good stuff doesn't seem to come as fast as the bad stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's my world. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're right. You're, you're certainly right to a certain extent. All right. So. You know, another thing that's popping up, so there's this, this idea of owning your platform. There's this hidden path that really is about relationship making uh-huh. as much as art making. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you recently closed a, a launch for a program and you did a wild and crazy thing to where you, you let people call you before they do it. I'm totally going to steal that, by the way. Um, but you mentioned that one of the common questions was around like doing social media and people are already doing their social media. Um, and really pull us in. What's the relationship between sort of the hidden path and social media? Cause social media doesn't seem to be very hidden, but you know what I mean? Sure. So if, if the traditional path is to hand your work off to a third party, to a gallery or something and, and hope that they sell your work, uh, then the hidden path is developing the relationship directly with the collector and social media makes it super easy to do that. Right. If somebody can follow you on Facebook or Instagram and see all of your work in progress and see who you are as an artist, what inspires you, what encourages you to make the kind of work that you make and how you interact with other artists and the rest of the world, that's going to give them a lot of context for your work. It's going to give them an in to that emotional connection with your work. And that's, that's where, that's the difference between people who say I'm doing social media already and people who are actually using social media as an effective connection and communication tool, right? I see a lot of artists who say they're doing social media. I am using air, I'm using scare quotes, but nobody can, nobody's going to see my scare quotes. Um, so, if you are doing social media, you're posting a picture of your, of your art and you're saying, you know, I have this new canvas that's available. It's $500. Click here to buy it. Nobody cares, right? (laughs) Nobody cares. Uh, But if you are using social media to tease a little bit of a preview of the work and then you answer people's questions about the work and then you tell them, Hey, I'm going to unveil this piece at this time. Uh, you know, and then you, and you, and you say, come, come to this live unveiling. 
uh, that's a way different relationship dynamic because you're actually responding to people, you're inviting people in, uh, you know, and it gets much more complex from there. But the basic idea is, you know, have a connect with people and talk to them instead of just broadcasting at them because social media is not, not meant to be a broadcast platform. Yeah, I, I think that's where we screw we screw up social media in general across all mediums. And I'm not always great at this. And like, and I know when I'm screwing it up. It's like it's a conversational platform, right? Uh-huh. And so you could be Instagramming like the the new print that's for sale, like you mentioned, right? Uh-huh. Um, or you could be on Blab and you know inviting people to join the Blab so that when you unveil it, it's like, hey, here's my art check it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And then people can ask you story or ask you about it. So you can like say, Hey, like, here's what's going on. Here's why I did it that way. So on and mm-hmm. so forth. Right. Um, and it's really interesting by the way, going to look at art with Corey because like, um, you know, we walk in Portland, Portland's a great town for it, but like we'll walk and he'll be looking at something and you can tell the, the artists that actually want their art to move will actually come up and start talking to us. Right. There are some artists and I've noticed this course, like we like the work and we're like, damn, we got to go like, where is the person selling this? Like <laughs> I have to go engage this person right? and, and I have to initiate the sales conversation right? mm-hmm. yep. the story where, you know, maybe I'm, if I'm at the front and I've been hanging out there for three minutes, like mm-hmm. I'm probably receptive to a story at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so that's a whole other line, but it's like, that's what social media allows us to do is to walk up and to that person that's already listening and say, Hey, what are you curious about? Is there anything you'd like to know and go from there? Right. Um, and so yeah. that's why when Corey's got the doing social media, we're like, that's broadcasting, that's advertising, which is different than this, this sort of human connection, you know? Yeah. Um, and Oh man, like the social media conversation is so interesting to me right now because Instagram just announced that they're, they're implementing an algorithmic feed Mm -hmm. and what's going to happen is all the artists who are doing social media, who are broadcasting, they're going to get nailed by the algorithmic feed. I should, I should explain what that means. So, uh, you, you're probably already familiar with Facebook and the way that, uh, if you post something on Facebook, only a tiny percentage of the people who follow you on Facebook are actually going to see it somewhere between five and 15%. Right. Um, because Facebook is Facebook looks at all the stuff, all the stuff that the people you follow post and they say, okay, we're going to show you the stuff that everybody else likes. We're going to show you the stuff that's getting the most likes and comments. And we're going to show you the stuff that you've interacted with before. So if you are continually just posting, here's my new piece, buy it. Here's my new piece, buy it. Here's my new piece, buy it. And nobody's liking, clicking or commenting on any of that. Then when Instagram implements this algorithmic feed, uh, nobody's going to see the stuff that isn't being engaged with. So on the flip side, if you are already good at uh, engaging with the people who follow you, that, got, that algorithmic feed is actually going to help you. And so what Instagram is doing is, despite the fact that everybody's flipping out and saying they don't want it, time and time again, when you see these algorithms get put into place, usage goes up, the number of people who sign up goes up, and the experience is better for everybody on the platform. It's just the way it works. Yeah. I mean, right now, so, um, Instagram is the, is the feed that is the platform. That's the least favorite of mine. Right. Um, mm-hmm. cause I don't create that type of art. I have to like really sort of hack Instagram to make it worth something for me. And the thing about it is, is when you look at the strategies around Instagram right now, it's really about volume, right? Mm-hmm. There is some strategy behind like who to connect with and tagging and things like that, but it's really volume because, mm-hmm. 
it's a role, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and people are, you know, I've been watching this and people are like losing their minds about this, but like who would ever go back to 2001 search engines that did not, that wasn't able to like service what we want based upon like popularity uh-huh. and things like that. It was just whoever could game the system and spam it the most. Right. Uh-huh. I don't even think we'd go back to 2007 search engines. Right. I yep. don't think we'd go back to Facebook or without their sort of thing. And even though we as creators, I will say this, I won't put Corey in there cause Corey wins at Facebook. Um, even though I hate that like 15% of the people are going to see my post natively, unless other people start to the liking steamroll. Like, you know, at the same time, that also means I'm not seeing other people's stuff too. Right? Mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind as we start talking about these changes. As the algorithms get more advanced, we actually get served more of the stuff that the that we're likely to like. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this thing we haven't talked much about this when it comes to this hidden path is the relationship to experts in your industry. I think are going to change considerably. Yeah, it's kind of like Sirowicki's wisdom of the crowds, right? Mm-hmm. To where, and then this is again happening across all industries is like what the experts say are going to matter only as much as they are able to set trends. Mm-hmm. Um, because the internet, Google, all the algorithms are going to operate off of Ziff's law, ZIPF's law, where it's much more than winner takes all. It's like, you know, it, it's really one of those things that the most popular thing is going to get 10 times, 100 uh-huh. times more views than the 10th most popular thing. Uh-huh. And I think we're going to see that go from 100 times to like 1,000 times as the algorithms get better, as it were. Yep. So what does, and the reason I'm bringing this, especially for fine artists, because well, we should say all creatives, but in my experience, granted, you work with them more. There's much more of a, oh, admiration, fear, deference to the experts in the fine art community mm-hmm. than I've seen in other communities, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they get on the hidden path. That relationship is going to change. What What do you sense of is going to happen or what is happening. Let's talk about that relationship between artists on the hidden path and experts. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that in a field where creativity and originality is the most important thing, that that is a field where experts and, and tastemakers have an outsized amount of influence. I find that really interesting. Um, if you go like, do yourself a favor, go to Tumblr and do a search for fine art or look at the tumblers that are run by the, the art galleries at the top, you know, the, the blue chip art galleries. There is a staggering amount of sameness when you look at the, the tumblers for the, the top art galleries. Uh, I find that just super, super interesting. Um, anyway, you asked me a question and it was... Relationship of the artist with experts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned like the wisdom. of. Okay, so wisdom of crowds, relationship with experts on the heart path, uh, on the hidden path. So uh, I think that when you become more concerned about connecting with the people who actually care and like your work, care about and like your work, your relationship with the experts becomes almost irrelevant. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's an artist that I is that I'm friends with here in uh, Portland, Oregon. His name's Matt Richards, and he runs a co- his company's called Echo Mobiles. 
And Matt has never been written up by the New York Times or any of the big art galleries or, or, or art critics, right? He's, he's essentially a non-entity when it comes to the fine art world. But his work is very popular and collected from Dubai to all over the U.S. to Asia. Uh, he just, you know, installed a piece at the Four Seasons in Hawaii. Like his work is very, very popular and very um, in demand. But he gets no love from the critics. So if your goal is to... How do I put this? If your goal is to become known and to get into the big time museums and to get into the, the history books and the textbooks, I would ask you to ask yourself, why? Why do you care about that? And most of the time, the artists that I talk to who care so much about that, it's because they want to have validation and they want to have recognition that their work is good you can get the same recognition and validation by connecting with your collectors and the people who like and care about your work. You will get the same, you, you will get the same amount of love and recognition. Whether or not you become known as one of the greatest artists of all time and you're the next Picasso or Andy Warhol or whatever, you have no control over that. There are lots of artists who were hailed by critics and written up as the next biggest thing and, you know, absolutely groundbreaking. And, you know, 50 years later, nobody knows who they are. History has a long, history takes a weird long view and, and you um, have no control who tells your story. Yeah. Um, you have no control who tells your story. Um, and you have, the most control about who tells the story when you own that narrative and you don't let sort of experts or the art community sort of like own that narrative. And yeah. again, as we become more algorithmic as a society, dependent upon technology and things like that, um, we're going to see that the, our ability to craft our own story and, and it stay forever, right? Cause uh -huh. websites until you shut them down right now. And even with archives, they live forever. Oh, Oh, so yeah, like talking about telling your story, uh, like the wisdom of crowds and experts and the relationship with experts. So the wisdom of crowds, go read the book. But the gist of it is that uh, if you get a crowd of people and they guess the, and, and you get them to guess the weight of a cow, if you get 100 people at a state fair, you know, most of those people are going to be way off. And a few people will be right on and a few people will be really close. But if you take the aggregate of all of those guesses, it's going to be almost, almost exactly correct. And so you can extrapolate that to all kinds of other things. And when it comes to your work and the value of your work and your place in society and whether or not people care about your, whether or not the word gets out about your work, um, in, in a world where algorithms matter, uh, the expert's opinion of your work is only one data point. And so if, if an expert in the New York Times writes about your work, that's one data point. But if that's the only thing ever written about your work, word's not going to get out. But if the experts write about your work and then all of your fans, your hundreds or thousands of fans that you've cultivated, if they also start talking about your work, that be then becomes very, very different. And that's when you can 
start relying on that wisdom of crowds, law of large numbers uh, thing. So cultivate an, cultivating an audience just has all kinds of implications for not only your financial stability, but also your long-term uh, reputation as an artist. Yeah. And here's what I'm going to say. Here's, here's the not so silver lining. Hmm. But, but Corey, to do that, you have to manage your own career. Yeah. And manage your own platform. Yeah, it's true. Um, you can't just give it over to a gallery and they do it for you. Yeah, that's true. And for some artists that works, for some it doesn't. Some, some artists are not in a position where they can manage their own careers. Maybe you're, you're so busy that you don't have time. And in that case, you've probably already managed yourself into a pretty good position. But uh, some artists, you know, they've got such, they're such crippling social anxiety that they can't, they can't interact with people. Um, or, you know, I, some artists, they, they want to maintain a certain veil of secrecy for artistic reasons. And so they want to go through a third party. Uh, there are a handful of artists that it makes the most sense for them to have somebody else manage their career. But those are exceptions rather than the rule. Yeah. So just remember this. This is the fundamental thing about creativity and entrepreneurship. Um, it's even about leadership as well. It's like where there's freedom, there's a lot of responsibility, uh -huh. right? And so if you want to be confined to the traditional path of art, right, you don't have as much freedom, but you also don't have to take responsibility in a lot of different ways. Yep. Um, however, if you want to have more freedom as an artist, then there comes with the responsibility to make some of these choices. Which platforms am I going to be in? How am I going to showcase my own art? How am I going to build my own virtual gallery, uh -huh. right? And those are a lot of different choices. And I know, I know, I know so many artists are like, I just want to make art. Yeah. Right. Um, and I get it. But think about choices and consequences and things like that and economic structures. And it, at the end of the day, I want you to think about the great corruptor, Corey Huff. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, in case you're looking at So is there anything about now that I've set you up as a great corruptor? Is there anything that you would want to leave creative folks or artists with just to think about um, to go forward from this episode? Man, we've covered a lot. I would just say art careers that are so interesting and I'm so grateful that I get to work with the artists that I work with. Uh, you know, we just started the latest round of our class and I think this might be the most amazing group of artists that I've ever worked with because you know, the more you do it, the, the better people you get to work with. Right. And we've got people who are like former diplomats and artists who have like viral videos with 30 million views and stuff like that. Like I am super excited to work with these artists and I don't say that to brag so much as to say that, say that art careers are whatever you want to make of them. And there's lots of different ways to do it. If you feel stuck and feel like there's not an option for you, reach out to me, you know, shoot me an email, ping me on social media. I, I love talking about this stuff. So I, I'd love to help you. And as far as finding me, uh, you can, you can head on over to the abundantartist.com. Uh, we've got a book coming out in June, June 28th. It's how to sell your art online is the name of the book. And we have a conference, the Abundant Artist Conference. It's a two-day conference where we've got business uh, artists, successful artists who are making a living from their art. Uh, those are all of our speakers um, over two days as successful artists. So uh, that happens in Portland, Oregon, July 1st and 2nd. 
All right, Corey, thanks so much. I know you're a speaker. You've got all sorts of things going on. Thanks for joining me again um, for this episode. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks so much. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Corey. Um, if you're on the artist path and you notice that a particular way is not taking you the direction you really want to go, remember there's a plurality of ways that you can show up as an artist in the world, but what's most important is that you own your path, you own your platform, and you own your relationship with your consumers and your relationship with yourself and your art. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.